Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Poetry Podcast with Alina Stefanescu. Alina Stefanescu was born in Romania and lives in Birmingham, Alabama, with her partner and several intense mammals. Recent books include a creative nonfiction chapbook, Ribald, Bull City Press, Inch Series, and Door, which won the Wandering Angus Press Prize in 2021. Her debut fiction collection, Every Mask I Tried On, won the Bright Horse Books Prize. Alina's poems, essays, and fiction can be found in Prairie Schooner, North American Review, World Literature Today, Pleiades, Poetry, Bomb, Crab Creek Review, and others. She serves as poetry editor for several journals, reviewer and critic for others, and co-director of PEN America's Birmingham Chapter. Alina is currently working on a novel-like creature. Hi, Alina, and welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Would you like to open us with a poem from Dor? I can, and I will. I think I'm going to start with Disquieted Obad. The morning after. A lip is a razor, an edge to brush across a cheek, a partner in softening. But I want to be a rock in the roadway, an obstacle to my own company, styled like the monk's avoidance, raptured in reams of black wool, a refusenik of all fuckable beauty. Unremarkable, and yet significant as the daisy between a week's unbrushed teeth. The road careens as kids pretend to be quiet as mice in the backseat. They play a game to survive the imagination's cats. And I wish I could drive with closed eyes and still keep this show whole, unwrecked, entire. Dear man, dear God, your taste stays glued to my body. I cannot help playing along. Inventing my own game from monks whose silence forestalls settling into one self. That series of solid expectations, the known quantity, the serious waste of being a personality outside the meter of interior mystery. We pull over to pee in a meadow of yarrow and fireweed. I lay these lips on our kids as if they are mountains points of orientation on a pilgrim's landscape whose only secret is water, whose source may be the barren stone cell that enables a monk to unimagine this world out of inconsolable longing to hear it. Thank you. I just finished reading The Bell by Iris Murdoch with um, a reading group and your poem, it reminds me of this line someone said of the book that um, the community that's formed in the book, the Anglican lay community is a place for people who cannot live in the world and cannot live out of it. And they're in this kind of limbo place. So I really admire that you've brought that to an abad. 
And also it's not your only poem. I mean, you have driving with your children in other poems, including the poem you published at Moist Poetry Journal, which I edit, disclosure. <laughs> I love that journal. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but for me growing up in the country, driving and being driven by my mother was such, I mean, it's such a hallmark of being far from places that you do so much driving, you spend so much time in the car and you get very good at it. Um, and that's always a very home encounter for me in your poetry too. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned driving because I think the pandemic space and a lot of some of these poems came about, including the one in Moist, a journal I love for how subversive it is in all the, in all the right ways. Um, but we were in the car a lot. There weren't many places that we could go. They were virtual schooling and you couldn't really go to a public space. So the irony is we were living in Birmingham, we live in Birmingham now. And in order to go somewhere, Birmingham just felt suffocating. And so we would get in the car and look for a meadow without a sign that said, no trespassing, et cetera. And that was sort of our lives. We would just, we discovered all these meadows, all these weird places, all these things that weren't on the map and sort of made our own um, map, created our own um, locations where we could, where we could mm. breathe outside pandemic, not feel, not feel, I don't know, immobilized by it. That is so beautiful. And it makes me, <laughs> I think my family did the like the stay at home, like kind of hibernating. I mean, it was summer and it's spring and summer. Um, and we put hammocks in our backyard and we spent a lot of time and, and last summer was wonderful, but this summer, the mosquitoes have just been incredible. I can, you just get eaten alive. Um, we would have done that if <laughs> Birmingham, we sort of, since we moved in the city, we lost our backyard. We lost our kudzu patch at our old house. We had <clears throat> the woods behind the house had all of our Christmas trees buried there, all of our pets who had passed. We had, you know, it was just this sort of wonderful enchanted space. And often during the pandemic, I thought if we had a backyard again, mm. just to let the kids, you know, disappear into a backyard, just yeah. it were, it's sort of, a, I appreciated that so much, so much more. I missed suburbia, which I would, I hate saying what I did. I just missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Well, kudos to you for getting out adventuring because my mom would always do that with us. And I think that was just a highlight of childhood was uh, being taken away somewhere, seeing new things. And, yeah. um, and I love that it comes into your poetry in that way, because I think that kind of the filtration poetics and letting your environment shape you. It's part of why I always, when some people are asking about eco-poetics, I always want to be kind of glib about it and be like, well, all poets are eco poets, <laughs> you know, all poets are doing this work with their environment. Um, sometimes not, but, but on, for a large part. Um, so I read this beautiful interview that you did with Tom Simpson um, and I loved it. It's called a micro interview, but I thought your responses were so generous. And um, I think really instructive for those of us thinking about how we can respond well to prompts and questions. Um, and there's a quote about door, um, where you say that the word is door, a sort of wonder that desires without the purpose of fulfillment that hungers without intent to sate 
that thinks without becoming knowledge or hardening into the tangible, the significance of this word and the look on my parents' faces when succumbing to it is a challenge to American versions of longing, which tend to be saturated in self-help and notions of attainment. Um, and I just felt such a deep yes when I, I read this, um, especially someone who's done a lot of work thinking about like the Greek telos and telos, whether you say it, you know, whichever way you say it and thinking about ends and how something always has to have an ends and, and what does it mean to do something without having an end? Um, and, you know, that's part of my academic background, but you see it so much in just daily American daily life. And people aren't thinking about it at that abstract level, but you don't need to, like, if you're always, um, being driven to, to have an end and to have attainment, um, and what does it mean to, you know, use the word subversive earlier with moist, what, what does it mean to be subversive in terms of this end? Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to kind of combine that with talking about, um, door is both like a project and how it came to be and how you set up your framework. Cause you have a very specific, um, linguistic and, um, and kind of cross-cultural framework for door. I love that you bring that up. It really was the heart of door. There's, I grew up in a family where, you know, people, if things were good, then someone would sit down and long for Romania. And there was no harm in that. Longing wasn't threatening and longing didn't um, expect something to happen. So Svetlana Boim's writing on nostalgia, right? There's reactionary nostalgia or reactive nostalgia and a sort of more creative nostalgia. There's the nostalgia that wants to recreate the golden age. And you see that in the South. You know this in the South, Han. You, you've grown up here, the idea of this confederacy and of this order that existed in this hierarchy. Um, and people want to see it happen again. And then there's a different kind of longing that is creative or nostalgia and longing, they're related in many ways, um, that is creative and that imagines, doesn't seek to be fulfilled, but uses it as a sort of process and entryway into other things. So for me, someone who is interested, I guess, in mysticism in the same way that decadent poets are interested in mysticism, in the same way that anyone who's challenging this linear idea of progress that we have is interested in mysticism, a temporality that isn't chronological or, or linear, that doesn't promise the future, could be better than, the, or will be better than the past. I, I don't believe that. I, I believe it depends on what we do. I believe it could just as easily be more horrible than the past. I don't think, I guess I'm not teleological. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and so dor came up as this word I'd heard again and again. And my, in my parents, there's this division between the American and the Romanian. And the American wants to achieve to define themselves by their achievement, to have a resume, to everything is directed, as you said, to an end. But what I see in my friends and in my parents and in myself is that it never ends, right? There's always another thing that will make you happy. There's always, if, if just this book gets published then, um, and it seems sort of grasping and desperate and empty. And 
I was really attracted to this word for many, many Romanians. I asked a lot of them, how do you define dor? And they said, oh, it's untranslatable. Oh, I can't describe it. Oh, it's like so dad, but also not wanting fulfillment. It's the enjoyment of doing nothing but longing. And mm. the um, and there being no cost to that. There, there's no action required of it beyond that. Mm. And so it's a sort of temporality that's suspended between all temporalities and takes the past and makes it present. You bring your dead in, your ancestors in, um, and they coexist with um, the children in the room. And, and um, there was something to me that is, uh, again, radical about that. And that was a form of sustenance for me um, as a child and, and during this pandemic sometimes. I don't know if that answers. No, that really does. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm not teleological. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's really, it's really interesting because I've been reading Toni Morrison's Beloved this week and the way the past comes crushing down on characters and they want to try to exist without it in the present. And they like want to like, you know, one of the characters wants to keep it in this box, right? There's this metaphor of like the lard tin that he will put everything in. Um, but that proves to be just as in some ways, not just as crushing, but kind of numbing to do, like you have to deny so much of yourself. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about the past in the South is it's, kind of inescapable but the people who want to live only in the present or um and so you know it's when you talk about not being teleological you're not at all talking about not you know acknowledging the past or not having the weight of the past or like talking about the ability to bring your ghost into your writing um which I think is really important um and has been really a kind of a fascination for me because you do have to kind of grow into that understanding. Um, I don't know. I just immediately was like, do I want to say that about like thinking about like, are you born without ghost or are you born like thinking about my children or um, me as a child or, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah. And I think that that is also, you know, looking at the present or looking at time in a non-teleological way makes reparations critical. Mm -hmm. you, you can't escape the past. It's always present. So it, the way in which its presence is acknowledged, the way in which it is, um, it is experienced, the way in which it's spoken to and addressed yeah. uh, is, determines how free any of us will be. No one mm. who is running is free. I mean, this is my parents' lesson. They run from, they defected, ran to the U.S. They're not free of what they ran from. Right. It's their primary language. It's the language I was raised in. It's their first kiss. Right? The, it's what love and care, the language that that's spoken in. We can't run from even recent um, history. So we have to find a way to exist with it and um, to acknowledge it, I think. I've been thinking about old books this week, and um, I had to look up this C.S. Lewis quote, who, who's not my favorite. <laughs> I have big problems with him. Um, <laughs> I like some of his fiction a lot. Um, but he has this really cool quote where he talks about 
um, in the importance of reading both old books and contemporary books and how the past isn't magical, but um, the past, we know the weaknesses of the past in the way the past can't. So when we read about some of their solutions, we're able to contextualize the problems. And um, so I was wondering if you have reading practices that help you think non-teleologically about your own work and your own writing and history. And... I wish that I could say I did. I am a promiscuous reader. I am, I read everything. If, if I disagree with something someone says, I immediately read the book they wrote in which they say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, um, uh, I've, reading has always been my way of being in the world, even as a child and, you know, going to Catholic school and not being Catholic and sitting through class with the portions where I'm not allowed to talk. We were, I was explicitly told I wasn't allowed to speak because this wow. was religion and history and I didn't, I couldn't contribute because, um, and so I, I would always bring a book and read under my desk, you know, and it's always been, um, it's, it's always just been super important to me. Edward Said said recently, I, I've been reading a lot about composers and music for this current project that I'm working on. And um, Edward Said said in a book where he's speaking to a conductor and they're talking about paradox and time. He said um, it, how important it was to him to read the past, um, how important it was for him to read the authors who, who were just wrong about so many things because we understand what other it puts it puts the conversation in a larger perspective than just our little time we my kids will look back on this time and they will say you all were so ignorant and so inhumane right um but if they haven't understood why we were if they don't read the arguments that we gave ourselves for um for that then there's no there's no way in which things shift, in which, you know, things thicken and grow. And um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that really answers or speaks to what you're saying. I don't have a reading practice except to read as much as I can, read a lot in translation. And, yeah, no, I, I think that um, probably using the word promiscuous was perfect because uh, that's, I mean, I hadn't really thought abstractly about reading old text versus new text or who reads what, like part of the Lewis quote goes into like, oh, experts read old text and um, like younger, younger generation reads only contemporary. And, um, and it, it is interesting to think about, you know, whether, or he was saying like students will often, instead of, if they want to find out about Plato, instead of going and reading a symposium translation, they will read an article, like a 12 page summary. It's all about the isms and, and, um, and like the beauty of going back to primary text, the, you know, the beauty of discovering the gatekeeping can't keep you from reading. You can go do that because many of us are told we can't when we're younger. Um, so learning that, and, um, and this kind of takes me into a question about um, being an intellectual woman or femme or, and, um, you know, you use the term non-binary ideas, which I loved in this interview with Tom. Um, and would you like to talk about your experiences 
existing in that space, which is a very particular space too. I would love to, and I'm gonna go back to what you said, um, what you mentioned. So about texts and books, my parents, my dad specifically, I remember the first time we talked about Marx, I was learning about him in school and my dad said, oh, no, no one, no, you cannot read Marx. And I, and I was like, why dad? He's like, because we were forced to read him in school. My dad identified Marx with the dictatorship um, in Romania. And so for him, this to read Marx was something horrible. Of course, in school, we got this brief blip blip that was Cold War focus. And of course, the first thing I had to do was read Marx. And so I read all of Marx. And for me, I think there were two, two things that I didn't read um, over the years. But in high school, you know, I, it was really important to me to read Marx and to understand Marx and to see I'm, I'm not sure how I would think if I hadn't read Marx. So it's a critical part of my understanding of the world um, and of, of history, of a time in history. And I don't feel like my dad did. I don't have a traumatic relationship to that book, right? Um, or to, to those books. And I think that that's really, a lot of times we come to a book or we don't read a book because uh, there's a lot of, it's a traumatic book for many people, okay? And, and Marx is traumatic for many people who lived in dictatorships um, because they were forced to read him and to recite him while their families were struggling for food and had no medical care. And you know, it, it, while their, their grand and their mothers were trying to get abortions and risking death, you know, th those, are, those, are, those are not, those are important stories that I don't want to leave out, but they're often, they're often left out. Um, that said, I, I find Marx very compelling. And, um, and that is, a, that's a sort of tension that I live in. So about the, um, the, the non-binary, there is no binary that holds me whole. Any binary in which I put myself will divide me. I'm not, I'm not Alabamian enough to that, to, to Alabama. I'm not Romanian enough to Romania, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, um, I'm not pure enough for churches. Um, I, there are many books that I've read that going back to the promiscuous that I think of them almost as people I slept with that I can't talk about. Right? There's this, this, the shame of the silent ones, but that have influenced me, that are part of who I am. And I don't, I want to be able to be whole. So I want to be able to be imperfect, to fit no particular group. And I want that not just for myself, but for my kids. And I want that for all of the people who are hybrid, for all of the humans who are constantly being asked to choose between loyalty to one part of themselves and another, or to to speak themselves in one language in an appropriate way as dictated by gatekeepers who find it easier to define one part of the binary, you know, and who have, those are, it's complicated, but I think complexity is critical to, um, to any ideas that we have about human rights, about humanity, and about coexisting in our differences. But. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, 
And it, I mean, it really, it really used to annoy me when I felt like I was getting treated like one of the boys in grad school. Um, because I wasn't taught since I was homeschooled. I, I didn't learn the socializations of like gendered, like how you present yourself as a, a girl learning things. So I just learned that you could discuss or argue or, you know, I never held back. And so, and my closest friend was my brother growing up. So, um, it was so annoying to feel like I was this, like one of the guys. And then now I'm less annoyed by that. And now I'm like, okay, they saw something in me that I didn't see, <laughs> but it, it is really interesting. Um, that that's such a gender is still a really powerful force in graduate seminars and it really frustrating. Um, to me sometimes and just seeing if you have a class of undergrads and who feels free to speak and who doesn't. And obviously there's always more than gender going on in those situations. Just like you say, it's complex and layered and people come from different stories. And, um, but it's, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm, I am terrible about authority. I, I think from the time that I was young and I realized that most of my teachers only spoke one language and had never been outside the United States, <laughs> there was very little that they said that I, that I could take automatically, mm -hmm. right? Um, also growing up and hearing things about the iron block countries that I knew weren't true, right? Hearing, hearing certain descriptions that, growing up in this sort of Cold War prism, mm -hmm. um, which you were, we were really objectified and instrumentalized for the purposes of, in the South, many evangelicals who had this idea of, you know, you left e the land of evil and came to the land of good. That's not what happened at all. They left an untenable political situation for one that promised them an easier life. That, these are, these are the, and they lost their family as a result. Their, fa they, their family was blacklisted. Everyone who was left behind paid for what my parents did. Hmm. Um, it, it was complicated, but I, have always been argumentative in classes. And I always ask a lot of questions, you know, I, I, if I'm in a city council meeting or sitting in the little seat and the important people are talking, I'm not sure why they're important. Um, I, don't, I don't see any value. I don't understand that that stage is supposed to somehow, or maybe I question it. I don't respect that stage mm -hmm. at all as a structure. And because I don't respect the structure itself, what that person says is, is the determinant. And so what you mean, what you, when you describe the boy, the boy side, I'm not sure I exactly experienced that, but I, but I was very aware and made very aware by friends and by this, by Southern femininity, the norms of Southern femininity, that mm. I was, there was something wrong with how much I liked books. There was something very unattractive about it. There was something emasculating um, when I addressed those points or asked questions of men. Um, I didn't know my place and nobody says, tells you your place. You discover your place by, by being told where you're not supposed to go. Yeah. And um, it's funny because now I have kids. I have one child who's kind of like that. She's really hard to raise, hon. It comes back, you know. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're gonna have so many problems in life, you know, like with this attitude. And then I just, <laughs> with your kids, you know, you sometimes see these sort of, you get a, you get a flashback, and you're like, oh, 
man, you know, that's, that's not the way to go. You will have, um, you'll be misunderstood. Um, I think it's, it's still a challenging, a challenging time for women as we construct femininity to be unrepentantly more interested in their own minds than in yeah. cooking, decorating the house. I mean, these are the, what do women talk about? Right. When you when you're with your friends who are close in a non-academic environment, we talk about the kids, the house, the body, but we don't talk about so much about, in my experience, books and ideas and you know. Yeah. I think you're naming why I have very few friends. <laughs> and I I the whole the whole like mommy play date culture is anathema to me and I just avoided it. And like my spouse takes all of our children to the children's birthday parties because like I can't, I just cannot like well, they're exhausting. And I like if I go to one, I come back and I have to like go on the couch. <laughs> it is exhausting. It's it is it's it's so exhausting. It's so it's so um I think maybe for some people, I don't know, is it not performative for anyone? You know, is it, it's hard to parent in a culture where so much of parenting is performative. And again, going back to grading ourselves on being good parents, we parent by brand, we buy a book and then this is a Dr. Spock parent. This is a attachment where everyone's got, oh, yeah. and you see all these arguments over mm -hmm. literally the type of um, brand, or I am a scientific statistic-driven parent who does evidence-based parenting. All of these things are just isms. They're just, and they're mm -hmm. and they're recent isms, mm -hmm. right? They're recent. Megan Galbraith has a great book, which I was actually finishing a review on, um, the Guild of the Infant Savior. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show it to you, but it's really good. It's about motherhood, about being adopted, and about nurture regimes as constructed in the U.S. over time. And um, it, it, it's also about the unspoken side of labor, which mm -hmm. uh, is a really, we don't treat things, we pay other people to deep clean our house. I don't, but most of my friends do. Or they pay someone else to take care of their kids, right? But we don't think of it as labor. And it is labor. Yeah, Never, you know, it's and and so being able to divide it in a house with a partner is important. Mm -hmm. But also at some point we have to acknowledge it as a labor. Um, yeah. And that's a bigger discussion, more difficult one. Yeah, I agree. Would you like to read us another poem? <laughs> okay, I will. Um. I will read Apologia or Apologia, which is a poem about abortion and about Alabama and also about Ceausescu in many ways and Romania, which was the only iron block country to make abortion, birth control and condoms completely illegal. Women stopped wanting to have children because they couldn't feed the ones they had. Over 60% of women had illegal abortions. It was the only means of birth control. Most of them were mothers and many died. Um, many died of sepsis on tables. And it's, speak to any Romanian and you'll find someone with that in their past. So apologia. At 22, 
I disappeared for a minute. I did not respond when you called me. I wanted the death Alabama didn't offer. I did not want the local D and C option. I refused the twilight sedation, the sucker of a specialist doing the deed for me. I have no excuse for what I needed to be guilty. After visiting a former lover in Manhattan, I went to the Liberty Clinic, swallowed the first pill, its origins French as the famous green statue. I used Mountain Dew to swallow the final pill on the train for Coney Island. I say Coney when I mean destination, the termination of pregnancy, the train ending in a carnival apart. The gulls witnessed everything. I stood on the boardwalk marveling, dumbstruck by dizziness as something left this body, its warmth flooding my jeans. My hands shook like toy airplanes. No doula or doctor or nurse or friend intervened. No expert stood between my breath and the sky, my breath and the clouds clotting, my breath and the unwanted baby, my life and the blood on my hands, the certain solace, a choice I made with myself. I did it all. I did everything. I wore the silver mermaid necklace for years, a souvenir. Thank you. Is there um, something you'd like to say about the title of this poem? I, the poem, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Han, but I think Apologia is, was a sort of ancient, um, not really an apology, a justification for why someone did something. And I was really interested in how the word apology hides in this word that is the opposite of an apology. And it felt like the right way to describe this experience for which one is expected to feel shame mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. certainly repentant somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel that. So I don't feel I would do it again. And, um, and I think it was really important for me to not have it done to me. Mm. In other words, to, to be the one responsible for it and to, I guess it was a very Kierkegaardian moment in my life. I was young, but it was important to me that it be my fault. It be my, I don't know, it be mine. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, it's been a, a big privilege in my life that I've been able to see midwives and um, I've just happened to be near a birthing center when I lived in Annapolis with my first child. And it really changes how you think about, I mean, pregnancy changes how you think about <laughs> your body. Um, but being able to 
have more control. Like you're genuinely given more agency over your body. When you work with midwives, they, they let you have it. Um, and I think that is, it's in, incredibly empowering and, um, but there's so much that's not talked about. I mean, it's most women don't even know that you might have a miscarriage or two before your first pregnancy. And that's incredibly common. Like I know someone who felt a lot of shame over that. And then when I told them like, no, I had one, they were like, oh, oh, you know, it's, but like the things that are hidden, the things that are not said, I mean, pregnancy, all of it. I just, um, I have warmed and warmed and warmed to Anne Carson's The Gender of Sound. Um, Over the years, my, I think I just warmed to it even more because like the discovery in pregnancy, like see that like, oh, I'm going to leak for nine months. Wow. <laughs> no one told me this. They were like, so about amniotic fluid, you wear it. Like, <laughs> right. right. Nobody, yeah. Nobody t- mentions all of the, the discharges and, and somebody, and because we don't mention it when it happens, mm-hmm. it feels, first of all, it feels like is something wrong. Yeah. It also feels shameful. Like mm-hmm. we, we, we spend an extraordinary amount of money trying to hide of and trying to protect other people from our bodies the natural thing that happens and about miscarriage my polish child in door is about that you know and you're right we don't talk about it we don't talk about how often that happens um we don't talk about um i think it's just difficult to to have those discussions and to know uh, how to begin them you know yeah women's healthcare is just so, you know, it's, it's hard to have a a body with any, you know, uterus or ovaries or in, and not, um, have it affect your life. And, you know, if you're a writer, it's, it's just incredible how much it dominates. Um, mm. And for women who, and for, you know, non-binary persons and women who have miscarriages and don't have a child, we go, Mm -hmm. I go back to this American idea of success in so many ways, a pregnancy that results in a birth makes you successful. Right. And so a miscarriage is a failure Mm -hmm. rather than a natural event that happens often and can be difficult and varies by person, but because we, we, we also internalize these judgments and we internalize Mm -hmm. these metrics, um, because we don't talk about them. And, um, you know, why did I want to be awake during the abortion? Because I had spent years in hospitals after getting hit by a car, waking up in a body after a surgery that couldn't move, that had Mm -hmm. new therapy. I don't like being put to sleep. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like, um, I, 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 if there was a way that I could be conscious, uh, it, it wasn't a grace for me at all to not be conscious of what was happening. Yeah. That wouldn't have been um, easy. And that was very difficult. In Alabama, it was illegal at the time to, to use um, a pill. And so I borrowed money from two different friends to yeah. go up there just to get, are you 486? Yeah. You know? And people were like, that's crazy. Why don't you just do it here and go to sleep, you know? And I was like, I won't be okay if I do that. Yeah. You know, it won't, it's not my, it's not my, 
It makes me, I mean, it really makes me think about the word labor because, um, you know, like an abortion is a labor of the body just as much as a birth is a labor of the body, um, just as much as a miscarriage is a labor of the body. And um, when you think about the bodily labors and how they're judged and treated differently than each other and, you know, weighed and measured against each other, um, and it's just in like how some labors are rewarded and some are disciplined. And I think it's something that I thought about when you were talking about resistance to authority is, is I know you have experienced discipline in your life because of it. Like anytime um, we kind of kick against the the confines or, you know, the, um, the limits or the expectations, um, like there's always, there's always repercussions for it. Um, yeah, sure. And I really loved, um, I really loved your poetry book, and the way that the the sort of hidden repercussions are involved in the syntax and in the repetition of certain words and in the in the excuses, um, the rationalizations, um, and how the landscape plays in that. I just, I think that the repercussions of not facing our ghosts or of not coexisting with them are enormous. And it's difficult when you see that and when you address it on paper. I think there's a fear of the people who have don't want the ghosts to talk. There's a fear of that. There's a fear that you're destroying the cosmos somehow when in fact you're actually just allowing it to speak. And yeah. I think that I really appreciated that about what on light and how um, it allowed so many things to speak and so many voices to speak. Mm, thank you for that. You have said some um, really smart, incredible things on Twitter and pos- if, if elsewhere, I would love if you can say, if you've written about them elsewhere where listeners could find it too, but about how you balance um, your different labors and your caretaking labors and your writing labors. And, um, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that now. So I have, because I don't know if it's because I don't have an MFA or because I started writing for publication later in life, but I've always been very aware of the inequities in the publishing and um, reviewing system that those I don't I, unlike my parents I don't believe in meritocracy I think they did or do because it allowed it gave them a way to understand the world so you drop aristocracy you replace it with meritocracy you've still got some kind of a structure that's aspirational and you know has certain mobility so we've got the upward mobility dream but that never quite made sense to me it's not what I saw structurally in the South. I didn't see merit rewarded. Um, I saw old, good old boys win elections Mm. and I saw um, racism Mm -hmm. uh, dominate how things turned out. So I, in my ideal world, there isn't money, right? Um, In reality, there is. And so I try to strike this balance between doing things without monetary compensation and that's for my soul that's for the world that i want to live Mm -hmm. in and then doing things 
with monetary compensation to acknowledge the system that I'm complicit in, to acknowledge that I'm not above, I'm not above or outside of it completely and to, and to stay humble in that. So there's the dreamer and the, I guess the, the complex human that I hope also that needs to be part of the way that I treat literary community in my life and labor in my life in order, I feel better when I do it that way. I feel more myself without, but it's not a binary, right? I mean, even that is not a, it, it's a complex knot. It's a tangle, it's a web. Um, it's not linear. Do you keep track of, like, is that, is that something you keep like a spreadsheet for or is it something you just keep like a mental tally or? I do, I keep a spreadsheet and, and that spreadsheet also helps me notice when I have committed to more things that um, would take time from my kids and my family that I love other people's writing. I love books, I'm a reader probably before I'm a writer in so many ways. And um, I love being involved in local activism. That is really important to me. And that is not something that pays. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just doesn't, but it's, it pays in, in ways that are sustaining. But I have a tendency to say yes to too many things and become unsustainable. And so that's, that helps me keep track. And also it helps me um, notice when I'm not as engaged with the world as I feel like I should be. So yeah, I try to divide it, usually half, not, not 50-50 in the months where I've had these crazy health things, then I have to sort of, you know, pull back from both and yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to hear because at least for me, there's always the temptation to not um, put it down on paper. I know I'm kind of lazy, but like not to write down what I'm doing. And then the volunteer work just tends to <laughs> swamp everything. Um, and so, you know, being careful, the whole saying yes, well, and, you know, balancing it's, it's important, but like you, I think so much of the important work that should be valued and should be paid for is not. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. Um, so, it's, you know, that's something real, um, especially like in this life right now where it's any, any moment our child is in contact with someone with COVID at school and needs to come immediately home and needs to have a test and needs to be, I think right now it's six days they're home. So uh, childcare on demand at any moment for school age child, when you're not, you don't have childcare set up. We don't live near family. Uh, one of us has to do it. So um, it is extra tenuous right now. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is extra tenuous. Another interesting thing is that um, I noticed I noticed that some of my, I noticed in conversations with friends that were upper middle class, that they sort of spoke proudly of never having done any unpaid labor, by which they meant they'd never volunteered anywhere. Okay. Never in their life had they gone <laughs> and volunteered, right? Wow. And, and, and I was surprised because my, these are liberal friends and I was surprised at the way in which they thought 
highly of their decision to never have done anything for free, given how secure financially they are. And then I thought about America. (laughs) And I thought again about the end, right? Money is an end, right? It It is the goal. You get a paycheck. I get a $50 paycheck for a poem and my heart is like, yay. And I feel an additional level of accomplishment, whether or not I want to acknowledge that to myself or not. Right. I feel like I've done success, something successful because I've sold it. Mm-hmm. And that is the key in the U.S. If you can sell it, they'll take it. Whatever it is, yeah. if you can show that you'll sell it. But that is not a humane metric. It is not a it it overlooks so much of the important labor done in the world. And it overlooks revolution, you know, which is yeah. never a paid activity is that these things are not. Um, the good changes we see are, are rarely paid. There's, I don't know, there's, but yeah, it's hard. I, I'm, I am less happy when I can do less of that. And your yeah. pandemic has made it so that, you know, mm-hmm. as you said, the childcare on demand, you say no more than you want and you feel the lapse of those engagements and those, that community in life. Although it didn't stop you with Moise and this podcast. <laughs> I mean, you just. Well, I Good. mean, it was, I, I resigned a teaching job several weeks before um, the shutdown. And in fact, I felt kind of responsible. Because <laughs> I like resigned. And then I was like, oh my goodness, I have childcare. I'll be able to write these essays. And I wrote furiously for uh-huh. about two weeks. Two weeks. And- then school shut down. Um, and I was like, did I do that? Um, so, so, you know, wrestling with, um, the kind of freelance writer gig life where you're kind of moving from one small project to or, or you have like five or six small projects all going at the same time. Um, it's, it's, absolutely where I want to be. I love that kind of work. My mother has always said I do too many things at once, but that's how my attention works. Um, it's, but I do feel a lot of the pressure about, you know, oh, unemployment, right? Like, but I'm like, I am employed so much during the day, almost the entire day. Like I'm busy. So who that's employment and, um, and, you know, having the privilege of a spouse who makes enough for both of us, um, is part of that. Um, so it's, you know, we keep our finances separate and, but my bank account is much more <laughs> modest. <laughs> it's like, it's just my writing things. Um, and I teach, you know, I teach a class at Duke during the summer and, um, the whole cobbling together a writer's life um, just because it's classic doesn't mean it's good or just, and that, you know, we shouldn't have a universal base income and um, you know, things that can actually help artists and caretakers um, who are doing so much work on their own time. And it's just, it's one thing to do it on your own time. And it's another, when you're paying for childcare say, and then, you see that the way you're going into the negative <laughs> to do work. And I think that's hard, um, really hard and very unsustainable. Um, but- so you mentioned that that is exactly, I did, I sort of decided to start doing freelance and to start, um, to start doing, to start working for money essentially mm-hmm. um, right when the pandemic started. 
and it was right before. So what you're describing is really familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was in this place where I could combine my love for reading with um, the, the creative projects on the side mm-hmm. and, you know, teaching and all, all those things. And I was blown away. Like you said, I felt just cursed. Here's the room. Yes. My husband cleared a room for me to have a study. And the minute he did that, the kids came home for virtual school wow. where they were. So I was like, oh, Virginia Woolf. And oh, I mean, all the expletives that you can imagine. I mean, oh I, and how here I am ready. Yeah. And here the world is reminding me why. Mm-hmm. That is, that is hard. You know, it, it's, it's really hard. And it's hard to explain to friends who don't do freelance um, what the deadline life is like you know, and what, what the, the responsibility that you feel. Um, I think I'm a very, like, I feel a lot of responsibility. I have a tremendous, I'm a very loyal person to humans. I'm not loyal to systems or ideologies, Mm -hmm. but I'm very, I'm fiercely loyal to people and um, especially to people who have been kind and to people who I, I think I admire, you know? And so it's hard, you know, it's, it's, it's just a hard, it's a hard thing to, to navigate. Um, yeah. And the husband is like, I like you better on the days when you're working on the fiction. He's <laughs> like, you're a real <clears throat> bitch when you're working on the essay. And I'm like, I'm putting that in the essay. You know? I mean, that, I think I, I am, I am, I don't feel, I think life is expositive too. Um, and I really admire writers like Annie Erno who are, who engage in, and Helen Sisu, who bring life into the room of the ideas mm-hmm. and who are not afraid of, um, of doing that, of, of looking bad. I think, I think we should be more comfortable with looking bad you know yeah individually as persons yeah yeah I agree I was thinking earlier too about um the poet Sean Singer posted um I believe it's Denise Levertoff's that might be misremembering the title it was either love letter in a revolution or revolutionary love letter this morning and just thinking about the value of labor and each other and love I, I was really incredibly moved. I need to print that poem out and post it somewhere. My whole family can read it. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, these are really good things to be talking about. I think that kind of like a lot of other gendered things, they're not talked about enough. Um, and it's still, it's still pushing, having to push against, you know, these kind of invisible barriers that are all too real. Um, so thank you for that. Would you like to close this with a poem? I, I will. I will. I'm very, I have to say this first draft of Dor that I thought was finished was three years ago. And I mentioned this on Twitter yesterday, but I actually burnt it. Whoa. I went into the backyard. I was so frustrated. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I still don't, but I was, <laughs> I loved it. And I was so mad at it and I went and just burnt it. And then I kept the ashes and put them next to my mom's ashes and on, in, the, in the room with the bookshelf. And my kids were just like, what 
is mom doing? Um, you know, what's going on with mom? Um, and so this version of Dor is a much tamer version of Dor in some ways. And, um, and it's, yeah. So I'm just going to, to preface the reading with that, I think. Okay, I'll read um, Sul Ponticello, which is a, um, a tempo marking in music. Sul Ponticello. The verb prolonging in Romanian is a mouthful of moist mountain soil. Our betrothal averted like eyes across a wooden pew. We divide what we must equal from the trough where swine sink their snouts. Has it been years or yards, bond acreage? A fathom measures the distance between a pair of outstretched arms. Still, you hold me like jello, sul ponticello, on the porch, in the kitchen, near a sink. Sunset cannot overcome its habitual marvel. Gilded tongue, scalded marrow, I cannot linger far beyond your palm's urge, knowing any body is a bow tuned to tremble, is a bow tuned to tremble, tangled limbs, mottled fruits, minor ninth. Thank you. And thank you for being here this morning with me in late October. And it's so good to hear your poems. And I hope that any listeners who want to read more of your work will check out the show notes with your website and also a link to purchase door. And thank once you again, so much. <laughs> it was really good to talk with you, Alina. Thank you. And thank you for listening.